There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Longshot. I'm executive producer Davin Coburn. This is our second season of audio documentaries at the intersection of sports and social change, reported by McClatchy newsrooms around the country. This season, we're heading to North Carolina, the heart of women's soccer in America, and the place where former U.S. national team striker Jessica McDonald became one of the most remarkable figures in sports. This podcast began as a story about the national team's fight for equal pay, McDonald's role in that legal battle, and their groundbreaking settlement with the U.S. Soccer Federation. But over more than a year of reporting, the story became an investigation into structural inequities rampant in the women's game, and a look at how McDonald's journey ties together so many of those threads. The lead reporter for this season is Alex Andreev. She's the head soccer writer at the Charlotte Observer, and she'll be your host for all 10 episodes. A listener note, this podcast contains adult language and adult themes, including harassment and alleged abuse against women, including from one of McDonald's former coaches. Allegations we'll address in a later episode. And now, from the Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. This is Longshot Season 2. Payback. It's the 69th minute of the 2019 Women's World Cup Final in Lyon, France. The U.S. women's national team leads the Netherlands 1-0 when midfielder Rose Lavelle cuts to her left at the top of the penalty box and carves her name in American soccer history. With a two-goal lead and yet another World Cup title in their sights, nothing was going to stop the American women. That's it! U.S. wins their fourth World Cup! 
Some of the players on that 2019 team have become household names. Megan Rapino. On call, run it back, back to back. Alex Morgan. 22 of my best friends and me winning the World Cup. But for many of those players and their fans, what that U.S. win meant off the field could prove to be more important than what it meant on it. As the players made snow angels and sparkling confetti, Parc Olympique Lyonnais erupted in chants. Fans around the world rallying behind not just a team, but a movement. The U.S. women's soccer team's behind-the-scenes battle with its own parent federation, exploding on a global stage. This morning, negotiations breaking down between women's soccer and the U.S. Soccer Federation over the fight for... The federation was never willing to offer the women equal pay. The numbers were always worse for the women. So in order to get equality, they had to perform twice as well. This is not just about money. This is about generations of discrimination against women on the basis of their gender. I'm Alexandraev, lead soccer writer for the Charlotte Observer. And for the past year, I've been reporting on a women's game at a crossroads, and maybe in crisis. Women's soccer is turned upside down after a shocking report that a prominent male coach is accused of coercing players into having sex. This podcast began as an investigation into the U.S. players' fight for equal pay, an issue with far more nuance than a tweet. The women were empowered to negotiate their own contract and the contract that they wanted. But what became apparent is that there is so much more to this story, and reporting that began about equal pay quickly became a wide-ranging investigation into how so many different components of social inequity coalesce in a women's game long struggling for legitimacy. I think there has been a huge change, and I think there has been no change. We're still talking about the same damn shit. Over the past year, I spoke with current players across all levels of major women's soccer in the U.S. and legends from the game's past. There was just a level of disrespect. We thought, what we're asking for is not a lot. I spoke with players' families and friends, and I sat down for a rare one-on-one conversation with the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation responsible for settling the players' groundbreaking lawsuit. Has the Federation been perfect? Absolutely not. But I've done everything to address the things that I can address. I discovered along the way that in women's soccer, there's no story quite like Jessica McDonald's. Jessica McDonald making her first start for the U.S. women's national team. How about that? A striker from that 2019 World Cup team who might not be a household name, but whose story you'll never forget. I ran away from home when I was 17 years old. I wasn't just scared, I was scared for my life. Jessica, she's had some very difficult moments in her life, but there's something inside the great athletes that is why they're great. Whose personal battle provides a shocking perspective as she tells her story for the first time. Thank God for sports, that was my escape. And then I find out I'm pregnant with my son. Giving the national team's battle a new light. I've always been the only mom on many teams I played for. I could have a bad game and my child would get blamed. Building her own legacy while standing alongside her teammates as they set the stage for generations to come. Imagine women in workforces everywhere having to fight less to be valued the same. Especially for the little girls who want to be in our shoes one day. McDonald again! You could totally be badass and be a mom at the same time. From the Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio, this is Payback, Part 1. The Roach Motel. 
The women of the U.S. soccer team are world champions again. Team USA beat the Netherlands 2-0 in Lyon. It's probably one of the most incredible moments that you know I've ever been a part of with my teammates. I have chills right now thinking about it. 2019 U.S. women's national team striker Jessica McDonald, one of 23 players on that World Cup team, arguably the most dominant squad ever fielded by the most dominant institution in all of soccer. For people in a whole nother country, the whole stadium in France, cheering for us equal pay. We knew at that point that it was a movement. It was a chant that echoed through the ages. The culmination of so many different battles for gender equality, it's hard to pick one specific starting point. And the war between the sexes could become an Armageddon if we don't get on with our revolution. Maybe it was 1963, when author Betty Friedan is widely credited with launching second wave feminism. But if we do get on with it and we restructure society to make equality really possible, then I think the war between the sexes will end. Maybe it was 1972, when President Richard Nixon signed into law Title IX, preventing discrimination on the basis of sex in schools, including in athletics. Title IX is one of the most important pieces of legislation of the 20th century. On the 40th anniversary of that legislation, former tennis star Billie Jean King testified before Congress about its impacts. The 37 words which comprise the language of the amendment have proven powerful enough to change our society and provide opportunities in the classroom and on the athletic stage for countless young men and women. Third match point for Billie Jean King. King herself brought the turning point to professional sports in her famous 1973 tennis battle of the sexes. I wonder sometimes what Billie Jean King thinks of all this. This is Michelle Akers. In 1985, she was a founding member of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. I think there has been a huge change, and I think there has been no change all at the same time. Akers might be the greatest women's soccer player of all time. During her 15-year international career, she won basically everything there is to win. And after Akers retired in 2000, FIFA named her the women's player of the previous century. Since I retired, it's not night and day, but it is hugely different. It seems like every profile ever written of her contains the word grit. However, we're still talking about the same damn shit. In the early days of the women's national team, grit is exactly what they needed. Because no one, including the U.S. Soccer Federation that ran it, really had a clue what the women's national team was. I think that was so special about that 1985 team. They played because they loved it. Back in 85, the U.S. women's national team was held together with hand-me-downs. Just about everything they had was left over from the men's national team, including the jerseys they wore. Legend has it, the night before their first tournament, the women stayed up through the night sewing the letters USA onto those men's practice uniforms so the women could wear them in their international competition. Literally like the old uniforms that the boys' national team wore. You look at old pictures and the sleeves come down past your elbows. <laughs> it's a good look. Julie Foudy joined the team in 1987 when she was 16 years old. Anson Dorrance, who was the national team coach at the time, ended up calling us in and saying, hey, do you want to come play at a tournament in China? I was like a sophomore in high school and I was like, I'm not going to China. 
who is this guy, Anson? And what is he saying about this U.S. team? I don't even know what this is. And he says to me, do you know what I'm asking you? I was like, not really. Clearly, I don't. He's like, I'm asking you to play for the United States of America. I was like, so that's probably a pretty big deal. (laughs) He's like, yeah. FIFA held its first international tournament for women in 1988, highlighted in this British documentary. Teams from 12 countries have gathered in what many people are predicting to be one of the most exciting new developments in soccer for many years. It's soccer, but with a difference. For this is the first world football tournament for women. The U.S. team was knocked out in the quarterfinals of that tournament. But at the time, being there at all was the only thing that mattered to Foudy and her teammates. It was $10 a day per diem. And I remember I got so excited because I got to bring home, it was a navy blue windbreaker with red stripes and it said USA. And I was like, hot damn, I just got a USA jacket and $10 a day. Like, who am I? This is amazing. From Tiani Stadium in Guangzhou, China. It's the FIFA Women's World Championship Final for the M&M's Cup. In 1991, the U.S. was one of a dozen women's teams invited back to China. The U.S. women marched through the group stage and met Norway in the championship match. Announcer Randy Hahn called the game, which was tape delayed, and broadcast on Sports Channel America. For the first time in the history of American soccer, a U.S. team will play for a world championship. Before kickoff, U.S. head coach Anson Doran spoke with Han about what a win there could mean. You know, we're doing this for all sorts of reasons, to show that you know, if we make the investment in American soccer, it will pay off, that we're not second-class citizens in the world's game, uh, and we can play it, so we're all very excited about this match. In that final, Akers scored twice for the women's team, and the American women held on to win by a score of 2-1. to one. We wait simply for the whistle, and that is it! And the United States... In the span of just a few years, the U.S. women's national team had gone from hand-me-down jerseys to a World Cup title. The year before, Thoudy had watched the U.S. men's national team make their own World Cup for the first time in 40 years. There was such excitement on the eve of that tournament. Then they lost all three matches they played and were sent home in a hurry. No question. The Men's World Cup was arguably the most important sporting event on Earth, with infinitely more visibility and prestige than the Women's World Cup. But it's also true that by 1991, there was already no question which American team performed better on the world stage. We started to realize there was a real disparity in our treatment and our funding and our support, and so little things started to fester. Despite the struggles of the men's team, an even larger honor awaited them and the U.S. Soccer Federation, hosting duties for the Men's World Cup in 1994. It was the first and only time the men's tournament had been played on American soil, and U.S. soccer threw everything it had into elevating the men's game in preparation for it. And then you see how, with the 94 World Cup happening, how the men were treated and the attention around them. And you're like, wait a second, why are they staying at five-star hotels and we're at the Roach Motel, right? Why did they have seven massage therapists and we can't even get a trainer? And we're not asking for millions, we're asking for simple things and they're not moving. It was kind of the mentality of, just be grateful you get to put on the red, white, and blue and sit down, sister. 
It was clear that in order for the women's game to move forward in America, those players would have to send a message to U.S. soccer and the growing number of little girls who were beginning to look up to them. I think I spent the whole like first four years scared to death. Um, <laughs> you have to realize I joined the team when I was 17. I still had a poster of the women's national team up on my wall at home in my parents' house. Do you remember what year that poster was? Yeah, it was 1991 World Cup. Okay. Oh, I remember. Cindy Parlo-Cone began training with the women's national team in 1995. At the time, she was a college student at the University of North Carolina. Today, she coaches a traveling soccer team, and we met after one of her games in Charlotte. Parlo Cohen knows firsthand just how influential that women's team can be for girls everywhere. I was a really quiet, reserved kid, so I spent quite a bit of time going, holy crap, I'm on the field with all these people that are literally, I look at every night on the poster of my wall for a good sleep. When Parlo Cohn was growing up, there was no paid professional women's soccer league in the United States. For young girls who loved the game, like Akers and Foudy and Parlo Cohn, there was one main pathway for elite women's soccer in America, and one employer, the U.S. Soccer Federation, that controlled all the money. When I was in high school, there was only like a few college scholarships for women's soccer. There was no World Cup for women. There was no Olympics. Here's Michelle Akers again. That was what really opened my eyes to what opportunities were there for women. And it was so disappointing and discouraging. And as far as like facilities and travel and it was basically high school sports, you know, with maybe in a little college sport flavor thrown in there. It was so hard to play. In 1994, the Men's World Cup brought a dramatic boost to the men's game in the United States, even as the men's team lost in round 16, 1-0 to Brazil on the 4th of July. The women's team finished third in their own World Cup the very next year, led by forward Mia Hamm, who was quickly becoming the face of the team. The influence that we had, and by we I mean mostly Mia had, was good, but it was pre-social media. Now their reach and their influence is so much greater than I ever could have imagined when I played. Harlow Cohn remembers the players embraced their roles as ambassadors for the game, even as the structural inequality persisted. Their advocacy for growing the game and staying till the last autograph was signed, carrying the water coolers to from practice. Yeah, I learned a lot about soccer, but I learned a lot more about how to be a good person and how to lead. Parlo Cohn and her leadership will become a larger piece of this story a little later. But back when she joined the national team, it was the veterans leading the way on gender equality. In 1995, the International Olympic Committee announced that women's soccer would make its debut in the games the following summer in Atlanta. A men's tournament and a women's tournament. Men's medals, women's medals. The Olympics doesn't offer prize money, so it was up to the U.S. Olympic Committee and the U.S. Soccer Federation to choose any financial reward for the American players. One piece of the contract U.S. Soccer offered the women's team, financial bonuses only if you win gold. For the men, bonuses for gold, silver, or bronze. We had hit a wall. 
in terms of just enough is enough. Like, come on. Because there was just a level of disrespect, we thought, too, and that what we're asking for is not a lot. Around that same time, Julie Foudy sat in the audience for a roundtable discussion and heard a tennis luminary talk about the barriers she had to overcome in her own sport. The day it really changed was when I met Billie Jean King at a function. And I'm listening to her and my jaw like hit the table. Third match point for Billie Jean King. And I said to her, holy shit, that's our story. And I don't know what to do. And she's like, Bowdy, you have the power. You as players, get them together and sort it out. And my mind was just like, it was like this epiphany. It was just spinning. And I got the team together and I was like, I was just with Billie Jean King. We are not signing this. And this is what we're going to do. And that was really the start to us saying, no, that was the start of our fight. Foudy, Akers, and seven of the other top players on the women's team all crossed out those bonus clauses in their contracts and faxed them back to U.S. soccer. The nine players were immediately disinvited to the team's Olympic training camp. Whether that was a holdout or a lockout is sort of in the eye of the beholder. We went on strike and then we had heavy hitters behind us in that. Billie Jean King was one and a few others stepped in and publicly on our behalf. Here's Michelle Akers again. We wanted better hotels, better travel. We were asking for the bare minimum of giving us the chance to maximize our time together to be the best in the world. And they said no. Largely, players on the women's team were looking for an investment from U.S. soccer that was equivalent to what the men got. But in one crucial way, they were also looking for something different. Benefits for mothers. One of our players was a mom, so we needed a nanny for her when we traveled. And U.S. soccer called us greedy, you know. And I still feel like that's kind of an answer we women get today. should be just grateful for the opportunity and here, take these little crumbs and then be happy for it and shut up. Foudy remembers that U.S. soccer ultimately agreed to a contract that would run through 1999. Players on the women's team would see their salaries increase each of those years, from about $2,000 a month in 1995 to $3,150 per month in 1999. And for those 96 Olympics, there would be gold and silver bonuses measured similarly to what the men's team was offered. It was scary. We had some players who were like, I don't know if I could do this. But what we knew is that if we all did it together, they would have to cave because they wouldn't have a team. The nine holdouts soon joined the rest of the squad in preparation for the upcoming games. That summer, the U.S. women's national team charged all the way to the Olympic gold medal match. There, they faced China in front of more than 76,000 fans in Atlanta at the time, the largest crowd ever to attend a women's sporting event. And the U.S. was victorious there, too, winning the game 2-1 to one and bringing home the first women's Olympic gold in women's soccer. The men's team didn't make it out of the initial group stage. Akers remembers the toughest competition the women's team faced wasn't on the field. U.S. soccer caved. And so, you know, we got what we asked for, but again, it was like, we shouldn't have been having to ask for it. Playing for the U.S. national team made you poor. It hurt. The mother on that women's team was Joy Fawcett. Her teammates call her the original soccer mom. And Fawcett's experience juggling motherhood and elite soccer has informed virtually every contract negotiation the women's team has had since. 
and the standards that player moms like Jessica McDonald see today. I've always wanted to be a mom, but I love soccer and I didn't know I would be playing this long. <laughs> You'll hear from Fawcett after the break. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the time she retired, Joy Fawcett had won two Olympic golds and two World Cups. Go! But back in 1994, Fawcett laid a foundation that more than a dozen other national team players have followed since, when she became the first player mom in U.S. soccer history. So I went to Anson and was like, you know, I want to have kids, but I'm not going to just leave my kids at home. I wanted to be a part of their lives and... So I said, hey, is it okay 
can I bring them along? And he's like, <laughs> and he just kind of laughed. He's like, you know, I know I can't talk you out of that. So sure. In May of 94, Joy and her husband, Walter, welcomed the first of their three daughters. And I don't even think he talked to anybody like how that would work or what that would look like. Or maybe it was like, he didn't believe me. I don't know. <laughs> Two months later, the U.S. Women's National Team held a training camp in California. Joy took the field. The hard thing was there was no information whatsoever out there as to pregnant women training or running or anything. But it was always on your mind to get back quickly. And that's why I came back so quickly within eight weeks, because I did not want to lose my spot. You know, and that was my biggest fear is taking that time off that I would lose my spot. Fawcett told me that early on, motherhood presented some unique challenges on the field. I was having issues breastfeeding because I didn't know anything about it. When you're running around on a soccer field, you have to chest a ball that's not comfortable. <laughs> so you feed and then they deflate because they're empty. And then you bind them with, all I had were socks, like my soccer socks. So I'd tie them around my chest so they wouldn't overfill. And so they would fill less and then it wouldn't hurt so bad. <laughs> Fawcett not only played her way back into the starting lineup, she joined her eight teammates in protesting the 96 Olympic contract from U.S. soccer. That holdout was the player's first move toward collective bargaining. And following that Olympic gold, Fawcett and her teammates got proactive about what their next contract should look like. Akers and Foudy took the lead. So I got a cold call from Michelle Akers. She said, I play on the U.S. women's national team. We won the 96 Olympics. And you've been recommended to us because of your familiarity with representing teams as well as individuals. John Langle is a retired partner at the Ballard Spar Law Firm in Philadelphia. She asked me if I'd talk to Julie. I said, sure. Julie called me and she told me what they thought their rights were with the World Cup Committee and with U.S. Soccer and told me that they thought their rights were not being recognized. Langle had never represented female athletes before, but he sensed quickly that U.S. soccer was not meeting its obligations under the Amateur Sports Act. That's the federal legislation from 1978 that governs the U.S. Olympic Committee and all other national governing bodies. What we thought we signed for the 96 Olympics, we sent the contract to another lawyer, John Langle. He's like, what do you think you have? And I was like, well, we have these rights and we have this percentage. And he's like, no, you don't have any of that. None of that is in this contract. It's like, what? That's what we were told. Foudy again. We said to him, how much do you cost? We were still like $10 a day. And so he goes, oh, no, no, no. You won't have to pay for anything until I start making money for you. Then you can pay me eventually. So we hired him in 97, I believe. And that's when we started to really make progress on equitable treatment. But he did all that work pro bono in the beginning because he was so surprised by really how things were. When she first became a mom, Fawcett says the players' contracts hadn't even considered motherhood as a possibility. Um, Yo Soccer was great in the sense that they allowed me to do it. Unfortunately, it was hard in the beginning. One, we didn't make any money. And two, I had to pay for everything extra. So I paid for the nanny to come. And then I would pay for my room, an extra room. Because just, we felt we deserved more. And you had to hold U.S. Soccer accountable. For the next few years, Langle negotiated with U.S. Soccer on a framework for the women's first collective bargaining agreement. We built into the women's contracts, if you're on the national team, that you were going to have daycare. 
we created pregnancy protections so that while she was out, she would receive a percentage of the contract. And I understand that percentage has now gone up. And when she came back, she would be guaranteed her slot until the coach determined that he wanted to go in another direction. Still, the back and forth dragged on. By the summer of 99, Langle hadn't yet hammered out a new contract between the U.S. players and U.S. soccer. But for the players, perhaps that was best. This is Stanford Stadium, a World Cup 94 venue for the men. The women take center stage today. It's women's Suddenly, the eyes of the world were upon them as the U.S. women hosted the World Cup. That tournament culminated in a championship game that would redefine women's soccer in America, rewrite the contracts that shape it to this day, the two very best teams in this World Cup going at it, and in at least one case, redirect the life of an 11-year-old girl in a living room just a few hours east of where that final would be played. This is the biggest game in the lives of these USA players. We'll go behind the scenes of that 99 World Cup final after the break. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta Visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, 
and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. By the summer of 98, the women's players were raising visibility for the upcoming World Cup any ways they could. The year before, we worked super hard to get the word out and get the people in the stands and connect with the fans. Joy Fawcett again. Everyone tried to put blocks up along the way. No, you guys should play in little stadiums, you know, so it looks full. You guys can't fill a big stadium. We're like, yes, we can. And on July 10th, 1999, the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California, was packed with over 90,000 fans, still the largest crowd ever for a women's sporting event. The U.S. and China played 90 scoreless minutes, then 30 more minutes of scoreless sudden-death soccer. That's it. The winner of the 1999 Women's World Cup will be decided on penalty kicks. Almost the moment the penalty shot left Brandy Chastain's foot. The USA could win the World Cup on this next kick. She became an icon. Go! Chastain ripped her jersey from her body and fell to her knees. Her teammates rushed to her, and Foudy tackled Chastain to the ground. As that tournament rolled on, just seeing the interest grow and build, and it became something that was in the mainstream. Here's Julie Foudy again. I still get a lot of women who come up to me saying, I was at that Rose Bowl, I watched that game, and it inspired me to do this. And that was really the dream. We had tremendous pride that this was serving a lot of young girls in a positive way and could inspire them to do great things going forward. Years later, a statue of Chastain was unveiled outside the Rose Bowl. A statue of a woman soccer player. The shockwaves from that World Cup final seemed almost unimaginable from where the national team started. That was the mentality. It wasn't for us. Michelle Akers again. It was, you know, our job, we felt, to grow the game and to create something better for another group of players to step into our role and keep this movement going. Off the field, lawyer John Langle helped the women organize a private victory tour, independent of U.S. soccer oversight or financial involvement. That independent tour paid each player roughly $100,000, giving them immediate financial security and even greater leverage for their ongoing contract negotiations with the Federation. Without negotiating a new contract, the women's lives financially began to change. U.S. soccer was furious that we did it, threatened to sue us. Langle remembers bringing Foudy and Mia Hamm to meet with representatives of U.S. soccer. We met for two days in Washington, D.C., and U.S. soccer blinked. Foudy remembers it a bit more colorfully. It got really heated to the point of Mia and myself basically telling the Federation they could go F themselves. And Mia turned to me and said, I've had a great career, Jules. We just won a World Cup. I'd be fine with retiring now. And I was like, yeah, me too. I mean, this has been a good ride for us. And (laughs) basically, we finally had a little bit of leverage to get things done. In early 2000, the players signed a deal that guaranteed them more income, plus bonuses for making the Olympic team, as well as bonuses for winning tournaments. In absolute dollars, 
The deal was in the ballpark of what the U.S. men earned from the Federation. But the structure of the women's contract was dramatically different, a fact that would loom large in future negotiations. In particular, the U.S. men earned most of their soccer income from their various professional club teams throughout the year. For them, playing for the U.S. team was just gravy. So the men's contract with the Federation only paid them by the game when they played with the national team. But in 2000, there was no ongoing soccer league for women and no guaranteed money for them outside of the U.S. team. So the women negotiated year-round salaries from the Federation. We had a goal when we started negotiating to give them guaranteed salaries so that women didn't have to have second and third jobs and that a core of women, let's call it 25, would be paid a sufficient amount of money, benefits, so that they could be full-time soccer players. That was the goal of the 2000 negotiations. U.S. soccer would spearhead the formation of a new women's professional soccer league to begin play in 2001. With that, a playing field was set by legends of the game who were impacting young women and girls all over the world. Including a young girl from Glendale, Arizona, who was finding her passion for the game they all loved. And on part two of Payback. I use sport as this coping mechanism because I hated being home. It's a pretty safe area now. It's pretty cool not to hear no gunshots. She happened to be at a soccer field one day and she was just smashing balls into the net. From that moment, I was like, nobody will ever be able to stop this girl in anything she does athletically. Thank God for sport. Thank God I had that ability to play. That was my escape. That was all I had. I'm Alexandreev. Payback is a production of the Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. It's produced by Kata Stevens, Casey Toth, Julia Wall, and Davin Coburn. The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Tytone. For lots more on this story, and to support journalism like this, visit charlotteobserver.com payback or newsobserver.com payback. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. 
I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.